back into Genesis 9, so make your way over to Genesis 9 this morning. Uh, In providential irony, which I don't think is an official theological term, and yet in providential irony, uh, we are learning about Noah getting blackout drunk on the day after our city celebrates this strange local holiday of drinking in excess called Fake Patty's Day. Uh, I was asked this morning if I planned this, to which I kindly explained, no, I did not plan this by planning this, you know, a year ago so that we'd end up on this holiday. That was not on purpose, but, uh, you know, it's a strange holiday. It's one that has that, that motto. Maybe you've heard it. If you, you can't be drunk all day if you don't begin in the morning. That's the kind of thing we're, we're dealing with here. Um, every year, this is actually the busiest, or yesterday, is the busiest day for the Riley County Police. They have eight times as many calls to, to 911 for drunk driving, well checks, disturbing the peace, fighting, public indecency. Um, And as John Dunning and I discovered the first year when we thought, let's go see what this thing is. Let's go down there one night. (laughs) And at a moment, we're standing there in this group. We're like, okay, it's kind of crazy. It used to close it down, and and it was just people. And this guy goes running by us, and then some security people go running after him. We're like, and we get down there, and we find out the guy was twerking upside down with his feet on the window at the creamery, at the Cold Stone Creamery, and his feet went right through the window. And... And, and that's, that's how that went. So uh, it is this crazy thing, though, right? In fact, Riley County has a whole website dedicated to how to get your friends out of jail if they get arrested. And, and that's it. So um, one of the things that this helps us learn here, right, is that uh, drunkenness often leads to terrible consequences. Um, and we'll see that in this passage. Now, but before we do read, though, let me remind you that we just learned last week, right, last week, um, how after the flood, Noah and his family, they come off of this altar, I'm sorry, they come off of this ark, rather, and they, and they worship the Lord. They build an altar, and they worship with this burnt offering, this, this sign of absolute, complete surrender. Lord, we are yours. I am yours. I am committed to you. And that's, that's where we, we leave off, right, um, at this what, would, what we could literally call a mountaintop experience in, in Noah's life, most likely a mountaintop experience. So um, now here we are. If you see, there's a, there's a gap here, right? And in, in, in words, sometimes longer gaps, sometimes shorter words, gaps between sentences. And here, probably a great deal of time has passed, given he's got an entire vineyard running at this point. Um, and it's a very strange passage. So let's just, let's just read it, and I will do my best to help you understand it, to explain it to you this morning. Uh, but let's begin at Genesis 9, um, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Jepheth took took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from from his wine and knew what his younger son had done, done to him, he said... Curse, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Jepheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. The grass withers, the flower fades. Well, let us again just open in prayer here. Father, we, we come to you in prayer because we need you. I need you. We all need you. And, and you have told us that all scripture is breathed out by you, that it is profitable for us. It is inspired, even the strange bits like we have before us today. And so, Holy Spirit, help us now as we, as we seek to understand your word. May we learn all that you have for us. May we better see our sin, and may we better see the supreme glory of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So the flood had whittled humanity down to, you might argue, the eight best people. Well, definitely, right, if they're the only eight people at this point. And, 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 and we see them, they come off, and they worship the Lord. They're, they're, they're clearly a godly line. And yet, it doesn't take long for us to see that sin lives on like a cockroach in Chernobyl. It, it turns out that not even a worldwide flood can uproot and wash away sin as it, as it dwells within the human. Now, I, I want to help you better read the scriptures for yourself. Not just this passage, but as you read scripture in general. And so I want to try something here. You've got the passage in front of you. Look at verse 18 right off the bat here. There is something here that should jump out at you as you're reading. Something that's a little out of the ordinary here. And, and, and I, don't, I won't make you answer, right? But do you see it? We're, we are not told here about the children of Shem or, or Jepheth, right? We are told that Ham was the father of Canaan. So it's put in there, right? And, and you might notice if you go to verse 22, it gets repeated again. That little bit of information is told to us. Why? We don't know anything about Canaan yet, right? This is a mystery to us. And, and in fact, Canaan isn't even Ham's firstborn son, right? He's the youngest. And who cares about the youngest? We all know that if you've lived in a, a family with more than one children. No one cares. And, and so here we are wondering why in the world would you would you highlight the youngest child here? I'm the youngest, in case you're wondering. Uh, I feel like I'm allowed to say that when that's the case. Anyway, and yet Canaan is being singled out here. You see, Moses wants to draw your attention. He wants to draw the reader's attention to this little bit of information. And that raises the question, why? Why do we care? So remember, this is not something where Moses goes along and he's allowing for every event and writing things down as they go, right? He's writing this near the end of his life. He's writing this uh, near the end of his time in the wilderness, uh, right? And, and that means the first people who read this already know what happens to Canaan, where they have gone. It's a lot like uh, some of you that are older, right? You didn't get to watch them in the, the now original, or the, in the original order, right? Star Wars Episode One comes out, and, and I remember watching that. And you see this sweet little boy, Anakin, and, 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 we, and, and we see that, but we already know who he is, right? We already know, and I'm about to spoil this for you, but you've had plenty of time, right? Anakin becomes the wicked Darth Vader. And you know that, and because you know that, the storyline here is this fascination. How does that sweet little boy become this monster of an individual, this, this evil villain that is Darth Vader, and, and so the people who this was written for originally, they, they recognized that name Canaan, but not so much the individual, not like, oh, that's Canaan the dude, uh, but as a nation, as, as a people who are known by the name of Canaan, kind of like, like Lutherans, right? They're known by the name of Martin Luther, uh, but, but 
like that, but think more national, right? Kind of like Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you know this, but that, that Saudi is from the Saud family, the royal family. But in this case, everyone is actually descended here. Uh, the Canaanites are genetically descended from the individual Canaan and, and his wife. Now, the Canaanites, what they understand then is they already have this big reputation. That name means something to them. They, they are known to be these pagans. They are known to practice all sorts of evil. They are known to be, to be sexually depraved. And, and the Canaanites currently dwell in the land that the Lord has promised to his people. They are the enemies of Israel, and that's the way they're going to see this. And so it's going to explain stuff. So, so the first readers would have heard this and just thought, ah, oh, of course. This explains why the Canaanites are the way that they are. And so, now that you know that Moses has intentionally drawn your attention to the Canaanites and a little bit about why, we can better understand the way the rest of this passage goes. Now you see, we don't know how long again, but years have passed. And in verse 20, we learn that, that Noah began to be a man of the soil. What that means is he works the soil. He's like a farmer, only in this case, he's actually running a vineyard um, that he's working on. And he's turning the, the grapes, right? Because you can only eat so many grapes. He's turning it into wine. And, and we see that, and it's not a moral issue at all that he turns it into wine. Scripture often speaks of wine as a, a blessing of the Lord to be enjoyed, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.7. In Psalm 104.15, we are told positively that wine gladdens the heart of man. And of course, Jesus, our Lord, miraculously turned not just a little bit of water, but great quantities of water into, into wine at a wedding in Cana. Uh, but Scripture also warns about the dangers of mis using this gift of God, misusing wine, alcohol. In fact, the, the priests in the Old Testament were forbidden from drinking, not all the time, but before they actually officiated over a worship service. Or, you know, and as Paul instructs us in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Right? So we're warned that way. But again, the problem here is not the good gift of wine, but the misuse of the good gift of wine. Right? Just like pornography and orgies, right? They don't negate the truth that sex is a good gift to, to his people in marriage. Just like the, the misuse of food, right? Just because people get, you know, commit gluttony and stuff themselves and, you know, that doesn't overturn the fact that food and the, and the flavors that we can enjoy in food is an actual good gift of God to us. And so also the misuse of wine leading to drunkenness doesn't overturn the fact that the wine itself is a good, good gift of God to his people. And yet, what we see here is not Noah enjoying a nice glass of wine. He's not doing that fancy thing, you know, all that whatnot. You know, Noah is abusing the good gift of wine. Because Noah gets hammered. He gets blackout drunk here. And then you've got to appreciate the fact that, that God even includes this story here, right? If, if this was just a human document, right? You take the Holy Spirit out of it, and it's just Moses writing about this hero Noah, right? They would have absolutely skipped this incident altogether because we don't like to highlight the worst parts of our heroes in purely human documents, right? In fact, that's why when you open up a children's Bible, you never find this story in there. There's never cartoon naked Noah or Noah passed out, they're all drunk. You never see it because it's really hard to explain. Well, a lot of that is hard to explain, but really hard to explain to the children why, why righteous Noah, who we've just been kind of celebrating, how that Noah is also three sheets to the wind Noah laying right there. And so never forget this, right? The word of God is given to us not to glorify God's 
people, not even God's people in biblical times. It was given to us to expose our universal need of a Savior because of our sin and to show us who that Savior is so that you and I can trust in him for the salvation we need. So first Noah gets really drunk, and then like a Joe Nichols song, only with wine instead of tequila, Noah just strips himself naked. Um, that's the situation here. It's actually not an uncommon situation in the scripture. Uh, Habakkuk 2.15, right, uh, accuses the Babylonians of getting their neighbors drunk so they can gaze at their nakedness. Lamentations 4.21 tells Edom symbolically, right, the day is coming when you're going to become drunk and strip yourself naked. Uh, and so we're seeing this, right? And, and while exposing your private parts might get you a starring role in a Hollywood film today, sadly. In God's economy, and God's word, exposing yourself outside of the marriage relationship was and is considered an incredibly shameful thing. That's where Noah finds himself. Now, now again, let's just pause here for a moment. And I mentioned already, but I really want you to consider this, right? This question, how does Noah get here? Because that bothers us, doesn't it? Here is this Noah, right? This, this is the same Noah who in Genesis 6-9 we read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This is the same Noah that we are told over and over in the same, same passages leading up to this that he did all that the Lord commanded him. Right? Two or three times we are told that. This is the same Noah who upon exiting the ark offered up wholehearted worship to the Lord. This is the same Noah who in 2 Peter 2.5, right? Peter describes him as a herald of righteousness. And yet here he is shamefully sloshed and butt naked laying in his tent drunk. This passage doesn't explain all the details of how Noah gets here. But that he is here tells us something disheartening regarding the human condition. The reality is that any one of us can be drawn into sin, any sin, any form of sin, yes, even you. For perhaps personal discouragement had overtaken him at this point. Perhaps he's, he's in the midst of self-pity, right? Maybe it's self-pity that has driven Noah to just long for this bottle oblivion, to just forget about things. Maybe he has neglected to seek the Lord in his life. Maybe he's just drifted away. Right? Have you experienced that? At some point in your life, there's this passion, right? This mountaintop love for the Lord, and then you get busy in life, and you got kids, and you got job, and you got bills due, and all these dumb things, and you just start to drift away from that passion of the Lord. You know, you just don't have time to read God's Word. Or you just rush through it to check it off. It's, it's lost its wonder. It's no longer novel. And, you know, you think about your time in prayer. It, has it become just a mindless thank yous before meals? You find yourself neglecting worship with other believers or just avoiding conversations about Jesus, about godliness, about what that looks like in your own life. In other words, have you become careless or lazy or apathetic in your relationship with the Lord? Have you embraced sensualities or a, a form of worldliness that, that day by day just feels more comfortable to you. As Peter wrote to God's elect, that's how he words it, in this first letter he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's just as likely to seek you at a time of rest or after a time of great success as he is a time of discouragement or stress. There is never a time where that's not the case. You see, Noah is not only the good, godly leader 
who could, he's not the only good godly leader that commits these atrocities in life. We, we sadly see this all over the scripture, right? It's not really a book of heroes. It's a book of sinners who, who find their way to the grace of God. You see, Moses disobeys and never gets to enter the promised land. David, who is called a man after God's own heart. I mean, who doesn't want that title? Man or woman, right? Um, but, you know, he commits adultery with Bathsheba or against Bathsheba, and he tries to cover it up by having her husband killed. You think of Peter, how much he said, I will never betray you, Jesus. Never, ever, ever. And all his speeches, all his talking. And what does he do as soon as Jesus gets brought into custody? He abandons his Lord. He denies he even knows him. Demas, right? Maybe you don't know Demas as much. He served alongside Paul. And we are told later that because Demas has fallen so in love with this world, right? Worldliness, that he walks away from Paul, presumably from the faith. Listen. Praise the Lord for whatever godliness is present in your life. Nurture that. Pursue that. You want that, right? But also know that no matter how godly your past or present may be, you are absolutely capable of spectacular sin. But by the grace of God, we could all find ourselves in Noah's shoes here. Or as it is, right? His lack of shoes here. And so then, Noah... After foolishly getting drunk, here he is again, sprawled out naked, and, and now he is passed out in his tent, and then in walks his youngest son, Ham. It's interesting, right? There's no denying that Noah is the one who initiated the sin here, the first to sin here, and yet Noah's sin is not even actually in focus here. It's not even addressed really in here, right? It's the rest of Scripture that helps us understand this and, and, and Ham's response here, but it's not what's stressed, uh, addressed here. The primary offense focused on is the evil response of his son Ham. And I know you and I look at it and you think, well, what's so evil about that? I mean, big deal. I probably would have done that. I would have texted my brothers. That's naked, right? Something like that. You know, verse 22, he, you know, he simply, it's not his fault. He just walks into it and tells his brother. Now, it, it seems like nothing, but, you know, so much so, in fact, that over the years, theologians have tried to conjure up, what did he really do? It can't be this simple. It can't be that, you know, what it looks like, right? And so they've come up with these ideas. Some have said Ham castrated his father. Some have said that he sodomized his father. Some have said he slept with his mother. I don't know where they get that. It's all Jerry Springer-level accusations that they are making, trying to make sense out of, out of how this could be as evil as it comes off and worthy of a curse later, right? But there, there's zero evidence of any of those things at all. What, what, what Ham did wrong here, though, we, we can begin to understand because it's the opposite of what his brothers are, are praising for, what they did right, right? And, and that means it's more than he accidentally walked in on his dad and was like, oh, sorry, dad, my bad, and, and walked out. That, that's not the situation, right? That, that stuff happens. That's not a big deal. It's not even that he saw his father naked. In old age, children often have to help their elderly parents use the restroom or change or bathe or things like that. That is incredibly honorable. That is service to parents. That is very good, an act of love. It, it seems here that Ham, finding his dad in a sleep, and passed out, and, and he's probably amused by this. You know, just like some people are today when they find their friend passed out in an awkward position after a night of binge drinking, right? They record the videos, draw on their face, something like that. And maybe amongst friends it's not offensive, but that's not the situation here. That's not the heart of what's going on here. And again, deducing from the opposite of what his brothers do, uh, you know, Hammy here shows no respect to his father. None. There, there's no indication that he tells his brothers hey guys, we gotta, we gotta help dad here. Here's the situation, right? Because, you know, he, 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 he's not asking their help to cover their father. Instead, Ham is telling them as a way of further uncovering 
their father. Making sure that others know this disgraceful behavior. You know, maybe even a perverse pleasure in showing, you know, look, look, it's dad. It's dad with our well-respected dad, the one that people call righteous, right, and walks with God and, and everything. Well, look at him now. He's passed out and drunk in there. Come look. See, later in Proverbs 17, 9, we'll, we'll learn whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Ham was in a position here where he could have simply covered his father. He could have helped mitigate the embarrassment that, yes, his father has brought upon himself. Instead, for evil reasons, we don't fully understand, Ham amplified his father's shame. Now, it's not codified at this point. It will be later, right, as it becomes the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother, and he fails to do that. We are called to, to honor, to show dignity, to respect our parents. And the hardest part about that is we're called to do that even if our parents make it very difficult, even when we find them drunk and naked on the couch or whatever equivalent, right, that, that we may, may look at to them and it's similar to that. And, and we do this not because our parents have earned it, but because God has called us to do so specifically to our parents. And, and we see that in, in the complete opposite response of his brothers here. Notice all the careful detail here given, right? Upon learning of their father's, you know, embarrassing situation, we don't, we don't see them go run for themselves and be like busting up laughing. You're right, there he is, right? They, they plan, how are we going to lessen their father's shame? And they take this garment and they, they lay it over their shoulders and then they begin to walk backwards. And their faces, right, we're told are, are, are facing backwards. And they cover their father. And just to be absolutely sure, right, that they didn't peek or something, we're told they did not see their father's nakedness. They went to extra care to, to not embarrass their father that way. And in this act, we see a very literal sense of what we are told in 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. Probably without realizing it, these two men are imitating God. You remember back in Genesis 3, I hope so, it wasn't very long ago, right? After Adam and Eve, uh, they ate the forbidden fruit, and suddenly they realize, they are shocked, they are fearful that, that they are naked themselves, right? And, and, and they go and hide, and God comes and finds them hiding in the trees and naked. And you remember what God does here? He doesn't just laugh at them. He doesn't point it out. He doesn't rub in their face. God makes them garments of skin and, and God covers their nakedness. God covers their shame. And if God covers people in their shame, so should we when possible. And this leads to another application for, for you and I here. Ham didn't create the problem. Noah did. Absolutely. Noah's fault here, right? And, and yet how Ham responds reflects his corrupted understanding of God, his blindness to the beauty of what is grace. Now, if you'll be completely honest with yourselves, unless I'm just way eviler than the rest of you, right? Sometimes in your heart, you, you might be filled with glee, uh, on some, some level of glee when you discover someone else in sin. You know, that in some way, it makes you feel better about your own sin, right? You know, at least my sin's not as bad as their sin. Right? Or it enlarges the pride of your heart like I am just not like them. Right? I am more righteous than that person. Shame on them. Right? You, you, you want others then to know their sin as well. Maybe not everyone. You don't want to announce it. You don't want them to know you told other people. Right? But, but you want to gossip. You, you, you want to further uncover your brother, your sisters, you know, in, in Christ here, to, uh, their shame. To amplify their shame. And we ought not do that. 
Now understand, I am talking specifically of, of private sin, right? If, if someone has committed a sin against someone, a, a child or otherwise, I'm not suggesting you cover it up. You, you absolutely bring that to the proper authorities. And, you know, if someone has committed a, a, a public sin, that needs to be dealt with and uh, addressed in public. What I mean here is, is, is when you discover your, your roommate's internet history, or, right, or you find your friend passed out drunk who, who you know, claimed they didn't drink at all, right, or you, you catch someone in a, a, a lie, c- you, you have this opportunity to cover up their sin, not by spreading this information further, letting everyone else know what they did. Instead, you go to them, you, you, you cover them in grace, and you see what's going on with them. Things are obviously not good with you, right? You put this in Noah's thing. Dad, things are not well. Let's talk about this, but no one else needs to know about this, right? You, how can I help? That kind of thing. So to this end, Richard Phillips says, in covering one another's sins, we, are not, we not only show respect to those who are God's beloved people, but also show gratitude for the gospel by which our sins are forgiven. Now let's consider what happens next here, right? Noah wakes up, and he knows what Ham did. Uh, we're not told how. Maybe he's in and out of consciousness, and he remembers what's going on, overhearing it. Uh, maybe he woke up, and his older brothers, when they, you know, the, the older sons come in to check on him, and during that conversation, well, yeah, here's, here's what happened, right? Uh, regardless, somehow Noah knows and Noah speaks here and like 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 the end of the sixth sense right it might surprise you to realize this but we have never heard a word out of Noah's mouth to this point did you even realize that not a single word not before the flood not during the flood not after the flood not a peep in fact this is the only recording of anything Noah's ever said and it's pretty much his last will and testament um, not necessarily in time, but as far as what he says here. And, and, and what are the first words we hear from Noah, right? Verse 25, you can summarize it as, as cursed be my grandson. Those are the words we hear, right? They, they, the, the whole cursed thing here, I know, feels weird. We, we don't love the way this, you know, comes off to us. It, it was actually pretty common at this time, or at least the time afterwards, right, for, for fathers to gather their sons around somewhere near the end of their life or when they thought it would be. And, and to bestow these blessings on them, to say, here's, you know, what I think is going to happen, that kind of thing. You, you think of Jacob and, and Esau, right? That it's not exactly that, but it's similar to that. And so Noah says there, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And, and, and you've got to read closely here, right? Because if you're going too weird, you don't realize what's happening, right? Because you're thinking, this is probably fair. Yeah, Ham deserves to be, be cursed, right? And in fact, it, you could call this Ham and the cursed child, right? But... But, but you also need to understand here that this is not Harry Potter-like magic that Noah is talking here. This is not Avada Kedavra, right? There is, there is no power in Noah's words themselves that Noah has to actually make this happen. The, the Lord God Almighty would have to be the ones to fulfill them. And it was the Lord God Almighty who causes Noah to speak this curse and this blessing which really begins to shape redemptive history going forward. Now, now given what Ham has done here, it doesn't surprise us for, for Ham to be cursed, but what is surprising, that it's not Ham that's cursed, is it? It's, it's Ham's son who is cursed. I mean, and can you imagine when, when Canaan hears this, right? Presumably he's a, alive, he knows his name already, and, and you hear this, someone's like, hey, you know, Grandpa cursed you the other day, and here's what he said, What? Grandma cursed, Grandpa cursed me? What did I do? I wasn't even there. I mean, the defense you would, you would have of this, and, and again, when God's people first read this, they would not have been thinking of Canaan as this individual, but, but as a family line. You'd be thinking of them kind of like, like you think of the Kennedys who have their own curse thing going. Now, the, you know, why in the world here is it Canaan and not Ham? 
right? Or, or why, is, why not all of Ham's sons, Cush and Egypt and, and Put? And, and theologians have pondered this question for centuries. And now there, there's generally four things put forward, possibilities, and admitted they are all more theory than fact here, right? You know, the first is that sin goes downstream in family lines, right? In, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, what a miserable truth that the sins of parents so often flow onto their children and entail misery and sin upon posterity. We cannot sin alone. We carry our children with us in these actions. And that's absolutely true. And yet in this situation, it goes to one specific son, not to all of them. Now, along those lines, you know, since Ham was the youngest son of Noah, maybe Noah decides to likewise curse the youngest son of Ham. And so that's one theory. Now, another theory is that Noah knows his grandchildren well, that he's already interacted with Canaan, that he already knows this boy is rotten. I can see it in the way that he, he acts. He has so many ungodly tra- tra- uh, character qualities and whatnot, in, in which case he just, th- you know, curses them because he already sees it. The, the, the third theory is that it was already ordained in the providence of God that the, the Canaanites would be the ungodly enemies of God's people, and thus Noah's prophetic words are aligned with God's redemptive purposes, in which case maybe Noah didn't even know. I don't know. I just cursed the last son, you know, and, and that's one theory. Now, now certainly the, the first readers of Genesis 9 knew the evil of Canaan very well. And so you and I might get hung up on this, that's not fair thing. They weren't asking that because they could already see the end of it thinking, yeah, they're pretty rotten. Yeah, right? So, so the last theory has the strongest biblical justification, and it's simply this, that Noah could not curse Ham, his son, because back in Genesis 9-1, you can glance over there to see it, God himself had already blessed Ham when he blessed all three of his sons, in which case Noah could not undo the blessing that God has already done it. And so it goes to the son. So then Noah not only speaks a curse on Ham, but also a blessing on Shem and, and something similar upon Jepheth here, right? Shem is the, the line which becomes the Jews. This is the line of promise, the line of Jesus. It's, it's also where we get that term, the Semite, right? We, we usually hear it today as anti-Semitic, right? Um, if you want to go full Hebrew, it's, it's anti-Shemitic. Uh, now, don't miss the details here. No, notice it's not really Shem who gets the blessing, is it? I think we think of it that way, but uh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. And so you see this tying of, of Shem to the Lord, and, and you notice there, I tell you this all the time, you see all capitals for Lord, and what does that tell us? It tells us that this is the name Yahweh in, in Hebrew. That's the covenant name of God, and so it is, Noah is marking here Shem as the line, as I've already told you, right? This is the line of, of the seed, the, the promise, and, and that's why Shem shows up later on in, in Luke's gene, genealogy, but the others don't, right? Luke 3.36, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the, the son of Lamech, he's the only son that gets mentioned there. That's the line. So the blessing is, simply put, that the people in the line of Canaan will serve the people in the line of Shem, and, and we see this occur in Scripture. That will all unfold later. We don't need to trace that. Now, there, there is one significant error that has come about uh, because of this prophecy in history, and that is a, a false interpretation shamefully propagated by many professing Christians here in the United States in history. And the error is this, to, to assign those of African origin as being descendants of Canaanites. Right? If you have black skin, you must be a Canaanite, and thus justifying enslaving those who are equally made in the image of God. This interpretation is abominable, it is shameful, it has zero exegetical or historical grounding, and it has no place for that. It should have never been in the church, and it's a glorious thing that it is overwhelmingly out of the church at this time. Now then, let's look at verse 27. It's not a blessing exactly, but it is good, right? Noah prophesies, and what's he say? He says, 
May God enlarge Jepheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now to dwell in the tents uh, of Shem means to enjoy the blessings that Shem enjoys, right? It's kind of like if you've got a parent, you've got a relative, and they have this great vacation home, right? You get to dwell in the tents. You get to enjoy the blessings of them owning that vacation home. And so the, the blessings of Shem will be extended to Jepheth as well. Only the physical fulfillment uh, of verse 27 here, it never actually occurs. We don't see it in the scriptures. We don't see any, any form of this in the Old Testament. And, and, and that's because this is a, a spiritual promise that gets fulfilled much later. It's one that involves actually most of us in this room. Maybe even all of us. I'm not sure, right? Um, no, most of us. So you, you see the Jephthah settle in the north and in the west area of, of Israel or outside of Israel. Uh, later, the Jews refer to them by a name you might recognize, the Gentiles, right? Anyone who's not a part of that line, the, the Jewish line, and, and, and we share in the blessing. Not, not only the blessing here, but the fuller blessing of the covenant made later with, with Abraham in chapters 12 and 17 that's fulfilled in Jesus. The, these words are fulfilled in Gentiles coming to the Lord, coming into faith, coming into the people of God through Jesus Christ. And, and today, the gospel respects absolutely no boundaries. It is to descendants of all of Noah's children, all who will look to Jesus with faith, right? I think John even mentioned that in the baptism today. Now, in, in closing, I, I, I want to return to this, this need of Noah as he found himself shamefully naked. You know, and, and given, given he's passed out, right, he was also unable to even cover himself. That's part of his problem. He's not even capable of covering his shame. Spiritually speaking, we are all ultimately find ourselves in that same situation, shamefully naked in our sin and powerless to fix it. And, and that is, that's why we go to Jesus, right? That's why Jesus comes to us, right? The, the, you know, why we go to the blessed one, to the seed of promise, because Jesus will cover your sin and take away your shame. And Christian, if you need that again, right, you think, well, yeah, I had that once. And then I kind of drifted away. If you need that again, right, if you feel like you need that again, rather, you need to know he'll, he'll do it again. He continues to cover you in your shame and to draw you back, to clothe you, to build us up so we can walk in faith, that we can walk in actual righteousness as well. Now, I'll leave you just with the words of Psalm 32.1 in the way that they look forward to Jesus. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let's pray. And gracious Heavenly Father, as you certainly know, we are so much like Noah. Even after moments of great spiritual triumph, even when we find ourselves having success in our, our desire for godliness, as we see you work in wonderful ways, after being delivered from the wrath that we deserve, even in these moments, we, we have not necessarily literally, but spiritually, we have found ourselves drunk and naked and ashamed in need of a covering, in need of your mercy. And we thank you. We thank you that you have not given us over to our own desires, but you have promised that though there is a line of cursing, there is also a greater line of a blessing, a line of promise. And by faith, we too may enter that line and dwell in, in those tents and enjoy your blessings forevermore. Father, I ask that you'd be real to us this morning, that your gospel would be real to us as we come to the table this morning. Lord, would you... Would you make the gospel so real to us? And would that empower us and, and fill us with joy, not guilt, but joy, to, to live in a way that, 
that honors you in obedience. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.